Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about them. And this is a big moment for institutional reform because the For the People Act, also known as HR1, also known as S1, is the talk of Washington right now. It recently passed in the House and you know, is now moving to the Senate where it's unclear whether it's going to be the thing that breaks the filibuster. Uh, and this is this is like the the Super Bowl of democracy reform here. I mean, this is this is a really big and important bill that does a, a, a tremendous amount for making our democracy more equitable, inclusive, fair, and basically you know levels the playing field so that all voters are treated equally. I, I've been a huge supporter of HR one personally. But, you know, I think there are a lot of questions about what's what's in the bill. What would it do? Certainly some criticisms on the right of it, that this is too much uh, federal involvement in our elections. So I'm really thrilled today to have Sarah Sadwani joining us. She is a political science professor at Pomona College who specializes in elections, interest groups and representation and Asian American and Latino voting behavior. So. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. We're uh, missing James Walner today. Yes, James Walner has gone fishing, I think. And welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really glad you could join us. So let's dive in. You, you, you wrote a piece recently in the Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post, in which you discuss some of the key reforms in HR1, and note that California has already done a lot of things in this bill statewide. Uh, so it's, you know, we, we have some sense of you know, what the effects of uh, the reforms in this bill might be. So the first thing I want to dig into is independent redistricting. I, I know that's something you, you've been intimately involved with because you actually serve on the Citizens Redistricting Commission for the state of California, which is tasked with redrawing district lines for Congress, uh, state legislature, and the Board of Equalization. So let's talk about independent redistricting. Uh, there seems to be pretty widespread uh, agreement that gerrymandering is bad, which I agree with. But I, I also think that there's probably too much emphasis put on gerrymandering as the cause of all things bad in politics and those independent redistricting commissions you know, sometimes are seen as this, you know, holy grail that will solve all problems of districting. So I, I want to ask you, based on you know, your experience and, and your studying of the issue, you know, what tell us a little bit about what independent redistricting commissions do, what they can do, what they can't do, and, and you know, what are some of the challenges that, that such a commission will face in drawing district lines that are there. Sure, absolutely. Well, thanks again so much for having me here today and to talk more about independent redistricting and HR1. It's a pretty exciting time um, to see the opportunity for change on the horizon. And yes, like, like I wrote in the, the piece in the Washington Post, many of the reforms um, that have occurred that are in HR1 mirror the kinds of changes that we've already seen um, here in California. For, for independent redistricting commissions, you're absolutely right, right? There's no silver bullet. Um, there's, there's a million different ways that maps can be redrawn. 
someone or some community is, is always going to feel like the maps don't serve them. But on balance, can independent commissions do a better job than a secret process where the community doesn't have much input? And I, I, th- I think the answer to that is yes, right? So, so what are independent what are independent redistricting commissions? I mean, in California, it was back in, in 2008 with the passage of Prop 11, which was a ballot initiative that the, bo- the voters approved removing the power of redistricting for the state legislature, of state legislative lines, I should say, uh, and, and putting that within a, with a commission. And then two years later, a secondary ballot initiative further extended that mandate to include redistricting for, for congressional lines. So 2010 was really the first first go around for California. Um, Arizona had already been using an independent commission, so there there's we weren't the we weren't necessarily the first ones to the game. But I think given the the large size of California, right, we have approximately 40 million people living in California. Um, it was it was certainly the first large scale independent redistricting effort. And I think in general, um, there are there are key lessons to learn, right? Independent commissions establish transparency. So here here in California, our our we have pretty strict transparency laws that govern state boards and commissions, which our commission has to adhere to. So all of our meetings are public um, during the pandemic that has meant that they're all live streamed. Um, and taped and recorded for people to watch. There's strict requ- like, uh, restrictions on our ability to speak to one another, to the, for the commissioners to speak to one another outside of a public session. And I think that's a good thing, right? When we think about redistricting, it's typically done in secret, in a in a back room somewhere, typically a guy with a computer using Maptitude or other mapping software. Um, this at a minimum is all open, right? And, and the public can watch and be engaged and involved. So I think that that's generally a good thing. A second piece that I think that you really gain with independent commissions is community input. The, the language establishing the Citizens Redistricting Commission in California, we have a mandate to go out and collect community information. You know, when it comes to redistricting, we often will talk about communities of interest and keeping them together. So the 2010 commission held, I I believe it was over 30 meetings all over the state, collecting community input. They received over 20,000 submissions um, from the community about where where people feel like their communities lie and why they want to keep them together. We anticipate for 2020, we're going to receive a whole lot more. (laughs) Um, We've actually developed a a mapping tool that's available for the community to map out uh, where their community lies. And they can share with us a few um, points about why their community should be kept together. Uh, We anticipate going out probably both via Zoom, but we're also, as as the pandemic uh, situation begins to shift, 
you know, we're, we're preparing to, to pivot to in-person meetings and potentially still have some hybrid of the two. Um, but we anticipate doing at least 40 meetings across the state to, to capture uh, information from, from communities on the ground. So I think on balance, those are very positive pieces that come out of independent redistricting. Of course, though, there are limitations, right? And we can talk more about, about that. It's not a perfect system, but you know, I think as I as I started out, there's there's no perfect way of doing redistricting. There's no perfect set of redistricting maps, right? That will ultimately come out. But I think at least having transparency and community input certainly make the process one that that's stronger for democracy, in which more people can be involved if they so choose. You know, one of the things we often say is that. Prior to the independent redistricting, the formation of the Independent Redistricting Commission in California, elected officials were choosing who they got to represent, right? Because they had the power to redraw district lines. But people should get to choose who represents them. And we often think about that in terms of elections, but we should also be thinking about it in terms of of the redistricting process as well. So let me, I just want to ask a quick follow up there and think about some of the downstream consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there there's a different level of trust that people have in the voting systems, a different level of engagement, different types of people who are participating, getting elected than, uh, than, than in, in, in the past? And sort of what are the, you know, you talk about that being a good thing for democracy. I mean, what are the more specific consequences or benefits maybe uh, you see coming directly from that process? Engagement, I think, is key, is one of those those key considerations. I don't think that many people are engaged in redistricting without there being a commission of some sort. And and some states have varying levels of, of other kinds of setups for their redistricting systems. But often there's there's little to no engagement of the public when it comes to redistricting. Um, often the public doesn't know much about redistricting. For us, that's, that's very different. Um, right now, we're in a stage of simply doing public education. I think one of the the pros that we're trying to, to make it a pro of the census delay Uh, is that we have additional time on our hands. So right now in California, we're doing a lot of outreach to community organizations and groups all over the state to ensure that people know about redistricting. So so just even having a greater understanding of what redistricting is and why it matters, I think is, is definitely one of those key benefits to the process, right? Just having a more informed electorate um, who can be engaged if they so choose. But I'm not going to I'm not going to um, paint a, a, an entirely rosy picture. I mean, I think that there are certainly some inflection points where it, where the redistricting commission process can go terribly wrong. Ultimately, you still have to select commissioners and there has to be some group or body that does that in California. It was the state auditor's office. I think they did a, a great job in general establishing a pool of qualified candidates to serve on the commission from different um, political backgrounds. But at the same time, one of the the things that happened is the final pools that the state auditor's office develops go to a lottery ball system and and were selected at random 
which in general is a good thing, right? There's no favoritism there. But what happened in California is the first eight commissioners who were selected, there were no Latinos amongst the first eight. And so, of course, in uh, in California, where 40% of the population is Latino, um, that's a, that's a problem. Um, and so there was there was definitely a large outcry uh, about that fact. The first eight commissioners, of course, choose the the final six. Um, and so we do now have strong Latinx representation across all of the, the political identities, including independents. Um, but, but certainly there are things that, that can go wrong, um, even in the selection process and the development of the pool could become politicized potentially. In California, you know, also um, our, our commission is 14 members. Five are, five are Democrats, five are Republicans, and four are independents. But, you know, as, as I think most political scientists would attest to, and there's a, some great research out there, most independents are, are typically leaners in one direction or another. So that could hold the, the potential to shift the, the partisan balance in one direction or another that may or may not actually reflect the, the partisanship of the, the partisan breakdown of voters in the state. So I think that's that's another possible point of contention. Certainly it's a point of contention in California because the number of declined to state voters is about the same as declined as excuse me as as registered Republicans in the state. Um, so there there is talk of whether or not it's appropriate for Republicans to have five seats while uh, independents only have four. But you know, I think for for the time being, that's that's where we're at in in terms of this setup of our commission. So I want to ask a question about the lessons from California in a somewhat different vein. What I want to ask about is the kind of ease of voting. I know there's a, a literature on this in in political science, and there's been a lot of discussion, obviously in 2020, about mail-in ballots and various flexibility of voting issues. So I'm, I'm wondering what the lessons are from California in, in this regard. So yes, California um, has definitely been on the path to creating greater access to, to voting for quite some time. Back in 2016, they passed the California Voters' Choice Act, um, which expanded access to early voting and, and more flexible voting during the pandemic. The decision was made to uh, send mail-in ballots to all registered voters. There's also opportunities for people to, to register right up until voting day. Um, and that most certainly has had an impact. I think there's still a lot of analysis happening just to figure out and try to isolate, you know, was it, is the greater turnout of 2020 because of all of these expanded opportunities to vote or is it or is it also a, in part due to a highly polarized environment and some very competitive congressional races in the state perhaps as well as the presidential election but i think most analysts certainly are pointing to to the 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 fact that the that ease of voting has made a huge difference in california we saw the highest voter turnout rate rate in 2020 since 1952 um, so that that's that that's definitely a signal of some strong changes that are occurring and i think one of the challenges with a lot of these studies is really isolating right what is the what's the causal mechanism here but certainly having that greater access um, most believe contributed greatly to to that greater turnout in California. So continuing in this sort of vein, I, I wanted to 
maybe kind of uh, zoom out a little bit and think about the implications of, of federalism and uh, and the federalized system of electoral rules. So we're we're recording this on March 26th, 2021, and Georgia has just passed a, a voting bill restricting voting access, creating a great deal of controversy. And, you know, we're talking about reforms in California that have been passed with, as as I understand it from your PS piece about, about improving representation, you know, California has really passed these goals, these reforms with the goal of improving representation. So I'm wondering if you, you have a sense that we're moving into a period of like real division among states where we have a, a distinct group of states that are restricting and then a distinct group of states that are thinking, you know, how can we expand access to the ballot box? How can we improve minority representation, which I want to return to a little bit more later in the podcast. So I, I actually want to ask about a kind of bigger picture of what are the implications of this federal system, you know, it's easier for states to experiment, but it's also easier for states to restrict. Yeah, I think that's right. I, 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 you know, are we moving into a period of division among states? I, I thought that that was a really interesting question prior to serving on the redistricting commission. I've always been been interested in democracy related issues. I think, especially coming from an immigrant family, that's always been a, a, a key issue for me. But Prior to academia, you know, I actually worked in, in immigrant rights work. And, and, and so I don't think that we're moving into a period of division among states. I think we've been in a, in a period of division among states. And if we if we think about it from the perspective of states that have over the last 15 years tried to limit access to any services or just make the lives of immigrants in their states more difficult, we can see a long trajectory for that. But what happens over that time period is immigrants do become citizens, their children become citizens, we have a whole new crop of people who are who are able and eligible to vote. I mean, a part of the story in Georgia is absolutely the incredible organizing and mobilizing of the Black community in Georgia hand in hand with mobilizing and, and organizing in the Latino and Asian American community. Um, so some of my other work has looked at the number of, of Indian Americans, for example, um, living in, in the surrounding areas of Atlanta and how many of them turned out to vote and, and were casting ballots in Georgia. So, you know, I, I see this period of restricting voting access to really from my view, be be an extension of those same kinds of restrictions that have been put in place for immigrants for the last 20 years. And this is just the next phase of it. California went through such a period also. Uh, in the 1990s, the passage of Prop 187 in California really looked to uh, clamp down on the rights of immigrants and criminalize immigrants, as we see, right, as we've seen in places like Arizona 10 years ago, as we've seen in other states following Prop 187. And there's a lot of great research. Ricardo Ramirez from Notre Dame has an excellent piece looking at the, you know, the, the mobilization and organization of, of Latinos in particular in California following Prop 187. A number, you know, masses of people went 
and became, you know, naturalized and became citizens. Their children came of age as voters. Um, and today, you know, the Latino caucus, for example, in, in the state of California is extraordinarily powerful. They've, they've been, they've galvanized a movement. So to me, when I see these kinds of restrictions, I am very hopeful that it's the last breath of trying to, trying to create a restrictive environment However, I, I also certainly recognize that it holds the potential of bringing down the entire democracy, the entire democratic system, which is 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 a real concern. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that these are scary times, and I do think that there's different approaches in different states because we're all in a different place of understanding what it means to be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy, and that takes some time. It takes some soul searching for elites as well as for for neighbors on the ground. Yeah, that's a really interesting linkage that I actually hadn't totally thought of. So we, I really want to return to this in this, the second section of the pod, this question about representation and becoming a multi-ethnic democracy. I'm going to hand it back to Lee now, who's going to ask a little bit more about the institutional structure. And I'm not going to lie, I'm very excited. He's going to, I think, also ask about term limits. And I really want to talk about term limits for a little bit. Yeah. So I, I want to turn to um, to the two two other big changes that California uh, made, I guess, about a, a decade ago. One was the uh, open top two primary, and the other was the introduction of term limits. Now, I think the general sense of political science research is very skeptical of, of term limits, and, you know, highly skeptical of primary reform uh, to, to the extent that I've seen uh, research, you know, on the top two primary and other primary reform, it's that primary changes don't make much of a difference. But I think people are mostly looking at ideological representation. Uh, and, you know, maybe there are other ways to, to look at it. So, you know, I think most political scientists would be highly skeptical that either of these two changes makes a positive difference and the term limits probably makes a negative difference. But I think you you have a perspective that's slightly different from that. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And, and I got to say, I'm not advocating for the top two primary or, no, or, or strong term limits necessarily. Um, but I think that if we take a different look at them, we can see them in a slightly different light. So yeah, you're right. Top two primary, most scholars approach the top two primary from, can this help us elect more moderates to an, uh, a legislature? And you're absolutely right. Most of the research has said, mm, not necessarily. <laughs> um, the jury's still kind of out on that. There's been a, a, several studies um, on that. But when I see the top two primary, especially in the state of California, I kept reading all of this research on top two primaries. And, you know, I, I should note, you know, that th that's been supported. A lot of these, these reforms that we're talking about today were, were supported by the Republican governor of California from 10 years ago, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, he's associated with the University of Southern California. I'm a part of his, his, uh, his research group. But I, I don't think that it's had that moderating effect. But when I think, when I read all of those pieces that have come out looking at the top two primary in California, they don't talk at all 
about the fact that California is a majority minority state, right? We are the most diverse state in, in, in the United States um, in which people of color outnumber the number of whites. So how do you begin to think about the impact of the top two primary when we are going through this period of such great demographic change? It was like completely absent from much of that research. So when I look at the top two primary, I, I look at a system that creates opportunities or actually constraints on voters um, where at certain points in time in certain in certain districts in a general election, they only have the opportunity to vote for either two Democrats or two Republicans. Maybe we should back up and just should we talk about what a top two primary is and, and how that uh, how we arrive at those kinds of scenarios? Yeah, yeah, just briefly. Yeah, so you know the the top two primary. Sometimes it's also referred to as the jungle primary. Um, you know, it's an open primary in which um, as many candidates as as you know who want to file can uh, can run. What we've seen in California is that it's especially in some hotly contested races we've had. 20 or 30 even candidates um, vying for the top two seats in a primary election. And ultimately, what can happen is particularly in districts that are more heavily Democratic or heavily Republican, oftentimes you can have a situation in which in which the top two vote getters from the primary election are two Republicans or two Democrats. And so um, I have several articles um, utilizing this system really as a as as a, a research tool, as an analytic tool, because what happens in those scenarios is you'll get two Democrats or two Republicans, but they're of different races, of different ethnicities, right? So I have one piece with Matthew Mendez Garcia. Um, from a few years ago, looking at Latino voters and what happens when you have two Republicans in a general election and one is is one of the candidates is white and one of them is Latino. How do Latino voters in that in that district um, choose who to support? And what we found overwhelmingly is that Latino voters in the in those districts support Latino candidates even if those voters are Democrats, right? They'll still show up and they, they still cast a ballot, but they're, they're, they're casting their support for a Latino, that that descriptive representational link um, is still very important. Um, so, so, I mean, kind of coming back to the top two primary, yes, most of the research asks, you know, can this moderate a, a legislature? When I saw that research, though, I just thought, well, that's negating the fact that we live in this, in this highly diverse um, state. And that doesn't even seem to be a part of the story. And so, so I, I, for me, I think of the top two primary is, is, are, is that an opportunity for communities to mobilize around certain candidates? Um, I have another piece that just came out in PGI back in January, looking at a similar phenomenon for Asian Americans and finding that, in fact, Asian Americans represent a cohesive voting block for Asian candidates. In terms of Term limits, yes, you know, certainly <laughs> uh, California is an interesting place to think about term limits because we also have a highly professionalized class of nonprofit organizations, community-based organizations and advocates operating in Sacramento. Um, and so, you know, 
what happens, I think, with term limits is you ultimately end up relying more upon upon um, these advocates who will who outlive the the legislators, right? Who are there much longer and have far more institutional history to know the the background of various policies. Uh, and who end up guiding those those legislators. The same could actually be said for independent redistricting commissions though, right? We only serve one term of redistricting and therefore who do we ultimately rely on to some extent, right? We, I mean, our call, our meetings, excuse me, uh, of the commission, we have people calling in regularly who are watching our proceedings from from advocacy organizations. And they've been doing this a lot longer than we have. Some of them were even a part of establishing the Independent Redistricting Commission. And so they they do end up having a whole lot of knowledge around how the system works, how it should work, how it shouldn't work, right? Having, Having perspectives on that, that is helpful, but also I think that you have to be mindful of, right? And be transparent, very transparent about. So I'm going to move us into this. um, I think this is a nice transition for us to move into this question about, you know, multi-ethnic democracy and representation. So Lee, I'm going to hand it to you to kind of pose the the big question. And then I want to return to some of Sarah's work on Asian American representation in, um, in particular, and then we'll wrap up. Great. Well, yeah. So, I mean, this is, I think this is certainly the kind of central question in our politics right now, which is a question of what is good representation. And we are, you know, really transitioning to being a multi-ethnic democracy, which is, I think, a a challenge. And, you know, there are certainly many multi-ethnic democracies around the world, but it is you know, can can sometimes lead to division and sometimes even civil war. Now, what I really like this uh, essay that you had in PS from a few years ago, Structuring Good Representation, Institutional Design and Elections in California, because I, I think a lot about the way in which our political institutions shape how we get representation and what kind of representation uh, we have. So I, you know, I want to ask you, what should we expect of our political institutions in terms of representation and what kind of standards should we hold them to? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, in general, a, a, a question that every citizen should ask themselves, right? Every resident even. You know, I, that piece in P.S., was asking about good representation and intersectional identities in representation. And, and our perspective, you know, I wrote that with, with um, Jane Jun, who's a, um, a very, very senior scholar, of course, at USC. And, you know, our perspective on, on good rep, what is good representation? Of course, there's a scholarly literature, very theoretical about what does it mean to have good representation? And so this was really a follow-up on that as a special edition on, on this notion. And as we began to think about a piece for that special edition about good representation and intersectional identities as they relate to good representation, it was really important to us to just acknowledge the structural barriers to electing and having uh, representatives with intersectional identities. That, that, that's been a challenge in the United States 
it continues to be a challenge in the United States for a whole host of reasons, right? And I think institutional barriers are one of those reasons, but it's it's one of those reasons that even if you're a great candidate, if you have all of the things in, in, in place that you might still just not be able to break in, you might not be able to defeat an incumbent, but because of term limits, which have other potentially negative impacts in general, it creates additional opportunities for women, for people of color, for LGBTQ individuals to to run and actually be elected and therefore creating a a, a greater, stronger pipeline of leadership. And so there's there's pros and cons to some of these institutional designs for sure. And and I I, I don't, you know, it's not my intention to overlook some of the the weaknesses of of those considerations. But if normatively, if we believe that having more people at the table of different backgrounds, different perspectives, different diverse experiences, if that's a normatively good thing, then how do we actually create a system in which more of those folks can get there? So I want to jump in and and ask to kind of move into some of the other questions in your scholarship or to move in a more kind of specific direction. I was really fascinated by some of the work that you've done on Asian American representation. And obviously, you know, for, for tragic reasons, this has been a topic in the news and Tammy Duckworth has confronted the Biden administration about Asian and Pacific Islander representation. And so this is, you know, this is really a question on people's minds and you've studied this in depth. So I, I'm I'm curious about not just how we can improve this representation, which we've talked quite a bit about, but also what are some of the specific challenges of thinking about and improving Asian American representation that maybe differ from the challenges associated with other underrepresented groups? Yeah, thank you. This is a, this is such a great question, and for Asian Americans in particular. I think the, the the number one question I think that we still have to ask ourselves is what is who is an Asian American and what does it mean to be an Asian American? Um, I, you know, I think when we talk about descriptive representation for Black folks, for Latinx folks, there's a lot of diversity in those communities, and I think there's some excellent research going on right now looking at the diversity within those, those communities. They're not monoliths either. <laughs> um, but amongst the API community, Asian American Pacific Islander community, we're talking about such a broad array of national origin uh, groups being lumped into one box that not everybody who gets identified as, as Asian American from the outside world feels like they're Asian American, right? So even on survey in survey data, one of the questions that we regularly have to ask is, do you identify more with your national origin group or with being Asian American? It's not a foregone conclusion necessarily. Um, certainly as we think about, you know, the inclusion of South Asians, Indians, Pakistanis, um, you know, I think most often, I was just seeing there's some grad students working on research now looking at, is, is Asian American typically just more associated with East Asian? And to what extent do, do Indian Americans and, and other South Asians identify with that term? Um, which I think is really exciting. So I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges 
in thinking about Asian American representation is, is who is that Asian American, right? Like, is it just recently, uh, Rob Bonta has uh, a Filipino American and, and formerly a state legislator in, in the state of California has been appointed to become the next attorney general for the state of California, filling the seat that Javier Becerra left behind. Is Rob Bonta as a Filipino American, is he a descriptive representative for Indian Americans? for Japanese Americans, for Vietnamese Americans. I'm not certain, right? And 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 not everyone will feel like yes, he he represents me, but I think that there's so much research to be done to figure out amongst those Asian Americans who do feel like like he is he is their descriptive representative. And so there's there's a lot of research that's uh including some of my own that looks at, you know, from survey data, can we do we see that that there is that affinity um, occurring between national origin groups. In a lot of my voter turnout work, I'm looking at, do we see a mobilization amongst all Asian Americans, depending on what kind of national origin background someone has? So I think that that's definitely one of the challenges within the community itself. Beyond that, however, you know, Asian Americans don't typically, outside of California at least, don't typically constitute a majority in a district in most places, right? Even if we're looking at state legislative districts, lower house districts, we're not really at the, the level of, of the size of the community to be creating majority minority districts in most places, though there are some in, in California, both in, for Congress as well as for the state legislature. That has implications, right, when it actually comes to running and winning. Um, that, that suggests that for an Asian American to run and win, they have to build a multi-ethnic coalition. And that's one of the things that I find really interesting is when it, when candidates of color can make that cross-racial appeal to others in their district to win their support and, and to be elected. And so typically when we see an Asian American who is elected to Congress, they've had to, to pull together a coalition of support within their district uh, in, order, in order to have won that election. I, I think that there's a lot more to be done there in terms of the research it's what I'm working on for my book. So, <laughs> so, so stay tuned. Um, but I, you know, I think it's one of those really interesting questions of what does it take to develop that multiracial coalition? And while that's unique to Asian American candidates, um, I think that can more broadly apply to other, other examples of people, you know, having to run and win in a multi-racial, multi-ethnic district. So I, I want to pick up on that point about the challenge of of winning in single member districts. Uh, and I want to quote something that you wrote in, in your PS article, Structuring Good Representation. And, and I'll quote, developing an account for representation of historically disadvantaged groups in the United States should be devised in light of the fundamental constraint of representation based on geographic districts. In contrast, proportional representation systems with multi-member legislative districts provide a broader set of possibilities for good representation because they provide the basis for coalition politics and increase the likelihood that smaller group interests and minority parties can bargain and win occasionally. In contrast, single-member winner-take-all systems provide inhospitable conditions in many ways for good representation of historically disadvantaged groups. And uh, this is something that I, I think a lot about, and I 100% agree with this point, and I think the comparative literature is, is incredibly compelling 
on this point. So it, it makes me ask, why aren't we focused more on getting rid of single member districts? And should we be? Hmm. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I... I think for me, I'm as a. I, I think of myself as kind of a pragmatist. So, I, it's kind of like why not get rid of the electoral college, right? I, I, I just don't know. I don't see that happening in the United States. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, do you see that as a as a viable path forward? Well, I, I do. I mean, just but, yeah. but just because I, I inhabit that conversation uh, and I see more and more interest in it, and also, I mean, whereas getting rid of the electoral college would take a constitutional amendment, changing to multi member proportional districts could be done with a simple act of the House. And in fact, there is already legislation introduced to, to do it. So, I mean, I, it just seems to me that, 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 you know, what you write and, you know, what the comparative literature suggests is, is that that's actually, there's actually a pretty compelling case for doing that in order to get better minority representation. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. And I, and I think, you know, that my sense is that the single member district setup can also create competition between different racial and ethnic minority groups. I mean, you know, one of the things that we definitely have to think about in California when it comes to redistricting um, is that especially in Los Angeles County, we're at a point now where there are neighborhoods that were historically black or historically Latino or historically Asian, but the blending of those, those neighborhoods has occurred in such a way that, you know, just drawing a, a, a standard VRA majority minority district is not really possible. Currently, I don't believe there are any um, black majority minority VRA districts in the state of California for, for members of Congress. And, and so I, you know, I, I think you can look at that in two, two different ways. One, it potentially creates competition between different racial and ethnic groups for, for descriptive representation. It could also, with organizing on the ground, create a lot of opportunities for coalition building um, and the creation of coalition districts, which is something that we talk a lot about in California. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that if that's of interest. But I, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, I I think if if there's a, a viable path forward for proportional representation systems, I think that would be very exciting. Um, and I'd be curious to hear more about, you know, the the you know the advocates for it. I it's it, you know, I think that was a, a broad idea of how we can arrive at a place with greater representation for various minority communities. I'm not terribly familiar with the the momentum to push for it, but likewise, there there previously hadn't been momentum for independent redistricting commissions and look at where we are now. So um, I, I, I love, I love the idea that we can, we can push forward and advance that notion if there's a viable path forward for it. So I think kind of wrap up on uh, the legislation in front of us, uh, which is the HR one S one for the people act. And, you know, just, uh, getting your sense based on your understanding of, of how it's worked in California of, of how transformative this legislation could potentially be and, and what the what the world looks like if it passes versus if it doesn't pass. Well, my sense is that, and I think you all, you all study this as well, so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it also, but we're at this 
inflection point in American history where there's low trust in government. Our democratic institutions have been greatly tested, I think, over the last several years. And HR1 does create the opportunity to strengthen them. You know, one of the things I talk about in the, the monkey cage piece is that a lot of the reforms that have passed in California, particularly independent redistricting, was not supported by Democrats uh, in the state. In fact, Nancy Pelosi was very much against the creation of the Citizens Redistricting Commission. Because why, why should they, right? If you think about it from a rational choice perspective, Democrats are the majority in California. They would get to redraw the lines and, and have the power of redistricting. Why would they want to give that up? So they were very opposed to it. Um, it, was, it was being pushed forth by Schwarzenegger and other moderate Republicans who wanted to make sure that, that Republicans had a say as this demographic and, and partisan reality really came into fruition. Um, and I think from the experience of the 2010 commission, and remember that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a sample size of one, that they did a great job and they, they, they ensured voting rights for minority communities. Um, they had a very transparent process. The lawsuits that were brought against the commission, as, as lawsuits are always brought against any set of redistricting maps, were all thrown out because the process was so thorough. And I think, I think that the realization there is that this is good for democracy. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to see this, this about face, right, where you now have Democrats advancing these notions of, of independent redistricting commissions and, and as well as a host of other opportunities to strengthen democracy while we see Republicans really moving away from it and, and, and looking to restrain access to, to the ballot. Um, I think that says a lot about where the party that party is at, where the GOP is at in terms of its desire to uphold democracy. Uh, I don't think that's true of all Republicans, of course, but nationally, it, it's not really a good look for them or for democracy. Um, so I think HR1 does hold the power to be very transformative. I'm very hopeful that it can move forward. And, and as you said in the opening, that it, this could really be the, the, the piece that breaks the filibuster. But I guess we'll have to see, see how far uh, Democrats are willing to go to push this issue. I'll weigh in and just say briefly that I think the other transformative potential in HR1 does actually come in what people do if it doesn't pass, right? That becomes the question of, do Democrats just sort of say, well, you know, back to the back to the drawing board, or maybe, you know, more seats in the next election. And obviously, this has become this kind of constitutional, this, I think it's a constitutional interpretation, right? It's a, it's a moment of what does the nation stand for? What principles are we organized around? And it, those principles have become partisan, which is, one of many unfortunate elements of the situation. But I think the the other transformative question is what happens if it gets stalled out by the usual procedures in this in the Senate? What are the what are the next moves there? And that's that's a much more unstable kind of transformative situation, but I do think it's worth considering. Yeah. That's a great question. And I, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I certainly hope HR1 passes and, uh, and I believe it would be tremendously important for our democracy. 
Um, you know, I think think we're we're out of time for today. But you know, in terms of, of of takeaways, you know, I think one of the things that that I really appreciated about this conversation and, and about your work, Sarah, is that you know we often think, uh, you know, I think I think there's a tendency to think about a lot of these procedural reforms, you know, independent redistricting, you know, voting by mail term limits in terms of their partisan impacts or in terms of the extent to which they are mitigating polarization. And, and, and you've given us a very different lens on these kinds of reforms to think about how they affect the quality of representation and how they, they lift up disadvantaged groups and how they open politics to uh, folks who, whose voices have, have not been heard. So I, I think that's an incredibly important perspective and I'm, I'm grateful uh, to you for taking the time to share that with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. For listeners of Politics in Question, I highly recommend that you check out the podcast Our Body Politic. On this show, host Farai Chidea examines how women of color both experience and impact major political events today. With lots of thought-provoking guests, she uncovers the lessons we might have missed from our past and prompts us forward in our own journey as a nation. For example, on a recent episode, she spoke with Representative Maxine Waters about organizing efforts in Georgia in the aftermath of January 6th. To hear more from Farai and other guests like Jamel Hill and Elizabeth Warren, you can find Our Body Politic on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.